Well, we're going to be looking this morning in the Gospel of Mark at a couple of different passages. We're looking at Mark chapter 11 uh, and also Mark chapter 15. I encourage you just to follow along with me in the bulletin. You know, I had so many people say, I really enjoyed those long scripture readings during the Ten Commandments. Um, um, okay, maybe not. But we're, we're going we're gonna to do it one more time. And one of the reasons we're doing this long reading is we're not going to have a good Friday service as a congregation. I know there will be others around town. I encourage you to, to find one. But we're not going to have one as a congregation. So I want us to spend a little more time this morning just thinking on the crucifixion of Christ. And I think these texts will help us to do that. So if you would uh, follow along with me as I read this for us. First from Mark chapter 11. This is the word of God. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem, went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And then from Mark chapter 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. 
And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we, um, we come to your word now and pray that you would use it in our lives, that you would open our hearts to hear it, uh, that you would open our hearts to, to believe uh, in this Jesus who was crucified, uh, that in believing our sins might be forgiven. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, some of you who pay attention to football notice this year during the NFL playoffs, there's a guy named Cody Parkey who was lining up to kick a last-second field goal for the Chicago Bears and win the playoff game and move on to the next round. And he actually, everybody has forgotten this, he actually made the field goal the first time, but the coach of the opposing team had actually called timeout. And so he had to go and kick the field goal again, and this time he hit the upright and hit the crossbar and missed the field goal and lost the game. And... You know, the, the fans hated him and, and, and just gave him such a hard time. The team actually fired him eventually. And, and just in the, in the space of moments, he went from being the hero to the goat. And I'm using goat in the old way, meaning loser, not in the new way, meaning greatest of all time, for those of you who are into all that stuff. He, he, he went from being the greatest to the least. Everybody was for him to everybody was now against him. When you read chapter 11 here and then read chapter 15 in the book of Mark, you get that same sort of feeling. There's this this stunning difference between the events of chapter 11 and the events of chapter 15. Uh, Between the triumphal entry and the death of Jesus, Jesus has gone from being the hero to the goat. And so what's happened? What happened in between? I encourage you this week to go back and and read through that and just meditate on what happened during this holy week. Uh, you'll see that the religious authorities plotted to kill Jesus. 
You'll see one of Jesus' disciples, Judas, actually betraying Jesus. You'll see another of Jesus' disciples, Peter, denying that he even knows Jesus. But as I read this, the, the change that really jumped out at me was the change in the crowd. In chapter 11, they're sp- spreading their cloaks and leafy branches on the road in front of Jesus. You spread your cloak out for king or for, for royalty to come by. The palm branches had become in that day something of a symbol of Jewish nationalism. Uh, they would later go on to revolt against their Roman occupiers and they would make coins that actually had palm branches on the coins. So imagine if South Carolina were under enemy occupation, we would probably break out the palmetto flags and lying the street waving the flags as this person we thought was the hero, the deliverer was showing up. See, that's what, that's what they were looking for. That's the kind of Messiah that the Jewish people were looking for. Someone who was going to come and someone who was going to get rid of the Roman oppressors. Uh, and to cap, cap us all off, this is actually happening during Passover, the time when they celebrated their deliverance from another oppressor. When they celebrated their deliverance from the oppression of the Egyptians. And so they see Jesus. It's Passover. They see the signs he has done. They've seen the wonders he had done. And they've got to be asking now, is this the guy? Is this the man? Is this the one that's going to, to come into town and actually liberate us? Maybe it is him. And so they're shouting, Hosanna, which means save now. Do it now. Bring salvation now. It, it, you're the king, right? You're, you're the hero. You're the one we've been looking for. It's our time, isn't it? And you fast forward to chapter 15. A few days later, instead of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Instead, you hear the crowd shouting, crucify him, kill him, execute him. We, we don't want anything to do with him. The text tells us that the chief priests had stirred the crowd up. But, but why did they go along? Why is there this transformation Uh, It's probably because by this point they had figured out that Jesus wasn't the type of Savior they wanted. Jesus wasn't the type of Messiah that they expected. They wanted a Savior who would deliver them from the Roman oppression. And it had become readily apparent that Jesus wasn't this guy. That Jesus wasn't the one they wanted and so they rejected him. He didn't meet their expectations of what a Savior should look like. And so instead of embracing the Savior that God had sent, they rejected him and said, we'll we'll just keep looking for a better Savior to come along. And so at the end of the day, they rejected him in hopes of finding the Savior that they wanted. They didn't understand what Jesus had come to do. They didn't understand who he was. They, They had no idea why they needed a Savior exactly like this Jesus who was riding in the town. Uh, And I think we can do the same thing today. We don't understand sometimes who Jesus was. We don't really understand what he came to do. And we don't understand why we need a Savior exactly like Jesus. And so what I want to do this morning is kind of ask the question, what's really going on here? Uh, Is the death of Jesus Christ just a tragic misunderstanding by some overzealous religious leaders? Is Jesus' death simply, as Gandhi once said, a great example to the world and nothing more? 
Like, hey, he suffered and he served people, and that's a good example we should follow, and it's going to be hard, but that's all it is. Or is there something more? Who is he really? And, and what did he come to do? And, and why do we need him? And it's that second question that I really want to kind of hone in this morning. What had Jesus really come to do? Uh, if, if we were to take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 10, you'd hear Jesus saying this. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so what Jesus is doing here, he's being very intentional. He's going to Jerusalem to die. He's going to Jerusalem to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to give his life for, instead of, in place of. He came to give his life as a substitute. You know what a substitute is. Like If you're a baseball fan, you know a pinch hitter is a substitute hitter. Uh, you know that a substitute teacher is one who stands in in the place of someone else. They fill in for the regular teacher. So we know what a substitute is, but, but what about this word ransom? We think of paying a ransom to a kidnapper. But in Greek, the word ransom referred to paying the price that needed to be paid in order to free a slave or a prisoner. Uh, if we read in the Pauline epistles in Ephesians and Colossians, they equate this ransom with the redemption for the forgiveness of sins. So here's the picture that the Bible paints in short. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, I think we probably saw that as we were reading and studying the Ten Commandments, that we, we break these commandments in so many ways all the time that there's none who does good, no, not one, as the book of Romans says, that we've all said to God, ah, not thy will be done, but my will be done. And the scripture teaches that the, the consequences of this, the wages of sin is death. It is condemnation for all mankind that our sin is hanging over our head. But the story of scripture is that God does not leave us there. That God has done something that makes it possible for our sins to be forgiven. But what has to happen for my sins to be forgiven is that someone has to pay for them. Somebody has to atone for them. Someone has to take the punishment for them. And what Jesus is coming into Jerusalem to do is to do that. He's coming in to be the substitute for us. He's coming in to pay the price for us so that we don't have to pay the price ourselves. And so what Jesus says in Mark 10, hey, I'm going to go do that. What we read about in Mark 15 is him actually going and doing what he said he was going to do. He's going to die as a substitute for the sins of his people so that they don't have to die for their sins themselves. Uh, some of you remember the movie Gran Torino, and if you haven't seen it, well, I'm, I'm really got to give it away now, because anyway, it's eight years old, it's your own fault. Um, in, in Gran Torino, Clint Eastwood plays a retired Korean war veteran who lives in this deteriorating neighborhood in Detroit, and over the course of the movie, he befriends a, a teenage, a young teenager boy who lives next door. And this teenager's sister is assaulted by a local gang, and so he decides he's going to go and get revenge. And Clint Eastwood knows that this kid can't handle a gun, and he's just going to get himself killed. And so he tricks the kid, and he locks him in the house. So he can't get out, and then he goes over to the gang member's house. 
And he's standing in the front yard, and he calls them all out on the porch. And he's standing there, and he kind of does this, like in that little Clint Eastwood way. And they're all just kind of staring at him like, what are you talking about? And then he, he reaches into his pocket, and, and they all think he's pulling a gun. So the gang members draw on him, and, and they all shoot him. And he, he falls dead in the front yard. And, and, and the movie ends with, with Clint Eastwood laying in the yard with his arms spread like this in the form of a cross. And what he's holding in his hand is a cigarette lighter. And the idea is this, is like he knew exactly what he was doing when he walked uh, into their front yard. He knew what he was doing. He was giving up his life. And in some ways he's trying to atone for his own sins. But he's also giving up his life to save the life of his young friend. He knew that for his friend to live, that he was going to have to die. Yeah, that, that's the kind of intentionality Jesus has as he heads to Jerusalem, as he heads to the cross. He knew what he was doing. This just, just, things just didn't go haywire and this accidentally happened and he wound up getting himself crucified. He intentionally went there to be crucified because he knew if we were going to be free, if our sins were going to be forgiven, if our lives were going to be changed, he had to die in our place. He had to die not to atone for his sins because he didn't have any, but he died to atone for our sins. That's what's going on in Mark 15. That's what Jesus came to do. And, and you see that in several places. And I don't want to look at those this morning, and you can go back and, and meditate on these later. These several places where I should have been there, but he was there instead. Uh, and and look, at, look at verses 3 through 5. And the chief priest accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. All right, so Jesus is innocent. And he's on trial. He's, he's been falsely accused of many things. And Pilate is actually giving him a, a, a chance to defend himself. Now, I don't know about you, but if I knew I was innocent of what, I would be running my mouth pretty continually here. Like, you don't understand. I didn't do this. I would in some way be trying to defend myself. But Jesus remains silent. The one who is innocent, the one who is actually one day going to judge the world, remains silent and allows himself to be sentenced unjustly. He intentionally allows an injustice to take place. He doesn't protest it. He allows an injustice to be done to himself. Now, why does he remain silent? Well, if he had spoken up, if he had presented his righteous record at that point and and not been crucified and not gone to the cross, then one day you and I would have to stand before God and present our unrighteous record because that's all we would have. We wouldn't have access to what Jesus had done. We would have to stand before God ourselves and present our unrighteous record to the Father. If he hadn't allowed himself to be sentenced unjustly, then one day we would have to stand before God and be sentenced justly. Jesus remains silent when he's accused. He allows himself to be judged in our place. Romans Romans 5, 8 God chose his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For us. 
Jesus allows himself to be found guilty for us because he loved us. Either, either he suffers there on the cross or we suffer for eternity. Uh, those of you who have young children know that loving them leads you to suffer a lot in their place. Uh, and, and here's what I mean. If you want your kids to grow up to be healthy and well-adjusted adults, you, you know or you're figuring out that you have to give up your life for them. Right? And, and some, if you're, you newly have children, this is, like, this is like one of the harsh realities. Like, oh my goodness, I used to have a life. And I no longer do. But if you want them to grow up to be healthy adults, you have to give up your life for them. You've got to dress them. You've got to bathe them. You've got to change their diapers. You've got to potty train them. You've got to read to them. You've got to buckle them into car seats. You've got to drive them places. And all that requires time. And that time used to be your time. And it requires money. And that money used to be your money and it requires energy and that energy used to be your energy that you got to spend on yourself and it's hard and it's sacrificial like it really is it's sacrificial but if you don't suffer from that for them now they're going to suffer for it down the road and if you give up and so you give up your life for them because you love them Jesus stands in and suffers for us at the cross so that we don't have to suffer down the road. He stands in for us. He suffers for us because he loves us. Secondly, um, look at verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Jesus is beaten, he is mocked, he is stripped of his clothing publicly, he is humiliated for us, for us. Uh, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, do you know that he went through that for you, in your place, so that you wouldn't have to? His, his clothing was removed. He was humiliated. He was crucified so that one day you can stand before God clothed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. You, you no longer have to come up with something to offer to God. You don't have to be exposed for who you really are. You don't have to create a, co a covering to try to, to hide your sin. Jesus was exposed so that you and I can be covered. He was beaten, he was mocked, he was stripped for you, for me, because he loves us. And because he wants you to be changed as you realize how much he loves you. Uh, Tim Keller in his book, King's Cross, writes this about the Harry Potter story. He says, remember Lily Potter, the mother of Harry Potter? 
In the first book of the series, the evil Lord Voldemort tries to kill Harry, but he can't touch him. When the Voldemort-possessed villain tries to lay hands on Harry, he experiences agonizing pain, and so he is thwarted. Harry later goes to Dumbledore, his mentor, and says, Why couldn't he touch me? Dumbledore replies, Your mother died to save you. Love as powerful as your mother's for you leaves its own mark. Not a scar, not a visible sign, but to have been loved so deeply will give us some protection forever. Why is Dumbledore's statement so moving? Because we know from experience, from the mundane to the dramatic, that sacrifice is at the heart of real love. And we know that anybody who has ever done anything that made a difference for us, a parent, a teacher, a mentor, a friend, a spouse, sacrificed in some way, stepped in and accepted some hardship so that we would not get hit with it ourselves. Therefore, it makes sense that a God who is more loving than you and I, a God who comes into the world to deal with the ultimate evil, the ultimate sin, would have to make a substitutionary sacrifice. Uh, a third place we see this substitutionary sacrifice is in his death itself, his, his death on the cross, which was an agonizingly cruel way to die, is a hard way to die. And yet Galatians 3 tells us this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Do you, do you hear it again? He became a curse. Why? For us. For us. He died so that we would get blessing, so that our sins would be forgiven, so that we would receive the Holy Spirit, so that we would have eternal life. He gave up his life so that we could keep ours. There's an old Tom Hanks movie called The Road to Perdition, and perdition means hell or, or damnation. And it's one of those cheery, emotionally uplifting movies that Susan makes me watch by myself. Um, but, but, but in the movie, Hanks plays this hitman. Uh, named Mike, who, who works for a gangster, and, and he somehow manages to keep his, his job secret from his kid until one day his son, Mike, Michael, stows away in the back of the car and sees his dad and the character played by Daniel Craig carry out a hit. And so Michael sees all this, and Daniel Craig kind of panics because he thinks Michael's going to rat out on them. And so one night he goes to Tom Hanks' house. Uh, and he's trying to kill Michael, but Michael gets away somehow, but, and instead he kills Tom Hanks' wife and his other son. And so he, he flees, and, and, and Mike and Michael are on the run, and you know, it's kind of who's going to get who first, and it, and it gets real complicated. And Hanks is determined, like, whatever I've got to do, I'm going to protect my son, even if it means going and, and killing Daniel Craig. Well, there's one scene in the movie where Hanks is confronting Daniel Craig's father, who's played, by, who's played by Paul Newman. And he's in a church, and he pulls him out of the church service, and he takes him into the church basement. And this is the, the dialogue. And, and Hanks says, he murdered Annie and Peter. And, and Paul Newman's character says, there are only murderers in this room, Michael. Open your eyes. This is the life we chose. This is the life we lead. And there is only one guarantee. None of us will see heaven. And Hank says, Michael could. Paul Newman says, well, then do everything that you can to see that that happens. 
And so the, the whole movie is about the determination of a father to do everything in his power to save his son from living the same life he lived, to save his son from the road to perdition, even if it means giving up his own life. And it's obviously not a perfect example, but I think it's a reflection of the kind of determination exercised by Jesus to rescue sinners, to rescue the ones given him by the Father from going down the road to perdition from going down the road to hell itself, even if it meant giving up his life. And he knew that it would. One last example, verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, we, we talk a lot about community and relationships here at Grace and how we're all designed for relationships because we're made in the image of God. And God's a triune God who's always existed in a relationship, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And they've always experienced the joy of one another's presence. And then on the cross, Jesus is abandoned by the Father. Maybe you've experienced pain like that. The pain of having someone you thought loved you abandon you. Maybe you've even felt abandoned by God at times. Jesus has been there. Jesus has been there. He was there on the cross. He was cut off from the Father so that you won't have to be cut off from the Father forever. So that you won't have to be cut off from the ultimate relationship and the ultimate source of joy in the universe forever. He did it. For you, so that you won't be cut off. One writer put it this way, he says, What then may we suppose was the agony of the Holy Son of God when all the sin of the world was laid upon his head, when he felt himself reckoned guilty, though without sin, when he felt his Father's face turned away from him. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus didn't come to start a revolution. He came to die in your place because he loves you. Well, why do you need a savior like this? And I'm not going to elaborate on this. Don't worry. Why do you need a savior like this? You need a savior like this because this is the only savior that can do anything about your sin. He's the only Savior that can do anything about my sin. My, my, my self-help books, my resolutions, my doing good works, my counselors, all none of that. My false refuges, none of these can save me from my sin and brokenness. Jesus is the only Savior who can. That's why I need Jesus. There were a lot of different reactions in this passage, aren't there, to, to Jesus. There's religious leaders who hated him. There are crowds who loved him one minute and welcomed him and they rejected him the next. There are political figures who are curious and confused but ultimately go along with the crowd. And then at the very end, there's this centurion who stands and looks up at the cross as Jesus breathed his last and said, Truly, truly, this man was the Son of God. We could sum it up all like this. The Son of God 
came to die in a place of sinful men and women, men and women like you, because he loved us so that our sins might be forgiven. Uh, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm not going to ask you to do anything this morning. I'm not going to challenge you. I'm not going to probe the idols of your hearts. I just want you to see how much he loves you. And I just want you to know that if you're in Christ, your sins are forgiven because he has done it. It is finished. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, uh, then you need to know that, that, that in order for what happened on the cross, for that to apply to you, for that to have something to do to you, in order for your sins to be forgiven, you do need to do something, but it's this. You need to come to Jesus Christ with childlike faith and hold out your hands and ask him to rescue you from your sin. And that's all you need to do. Tell him you want him to be your substitute. And he will. He will. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the message of the gospel. And that Jesus came and took what we deserved and was our substitute. And he did it all so that we could be forgiven and go free. Help us to believe that and to rejoice in that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.